0: Today, and welcome to the Constant Investors weekly radio show, Talking Finance. Well, we're up to our necks in half yearly results at the moment, drowning under guidance and expectations. It's a time when CEOs emerge from their bunkers to spruik their fabulous results or explain why they fell short. And in Talking Finance today, we've got one of each. Richard Murray of JB Hi-Fi is the spruiker. Magnus Nicolin of Ansell is the explainer. And in particular, he's explaining why he's going condom free. But first, one of the big political stories of the week is climate, and in particular, coal versus renewables, and the recent heat waves that have been causing blackouts. Now, there's a couple of very apt old sayings that apply here it's an ill wind that blows no one any good, and every cloud has a silver lining. What investors need to understand is that consumers' losses from underinvestment in electricity generation can be investors' gains, as Tristan Edis, a director of Green Energy Markets, explains. And by the way, Tristan was also editor of the online publication that I started a few years ago called Climate Spectator.
1: It makes it difficult for new entrants to come in and invest in substantial new power generation capacity because... They don't know what the long-term rules of the game are and to some extent that favours the incumbents who have existing generation in place and we've seen in the last really 12 months a huge increase in the underlying wholesale price of electricity. That's the price that the electricity generators get paid and that's been fantastic news for AGL and they purchased at very low costs coal generators from New South Wales government out of privatisation and that's been a superb acquisition and at the time that that happened you know the market was hugely oversupplied with generating capacity and some questioned the wisdom of that deal in spite of the fact that it was a very low price for those power stations relative to what it would cost to replace them but it's turned out to be superb for AGL because Eventually, some people bit the bullet and closed some power stations that were very old.
0: The big one, of course, is Hazelwood, which seems to have been a sort of a rock in the pond of energy markets in Australia and is having a lot of impacts. Could you talk about what those effects of the Hazelwood closure are?
1: I suppose the first thing is that it's scheduled to close in March, but what we saw was a substantial and quick increase In the price for electricity on what are known as the forward contract market. So you can buy electricity in advance of your needs through a year-long forward contract. And the moment that it hit the news that Hazelwood was likely to shut, it took a little while before it was absolutely confirmed by the company. We saw the price on the contract market instantly spike up for 2018 and even 2017 vintage contracts. So, that's what we can see. And it will start flowing through once Hazelwood shuts, we'll see a a lift in the wholesale price. But really, that's already flowed through to energy prices through the contract market.
0: And I wonder if you could help us make sense of the argument about South Australia and the blackouts there, which is obviously going on for a while and the the federal government's blaming what it calls South Australia's experiment in renewables. Firstly, can you sort of help us pick through this? And secondly, what does it mean for renewables companies like Infogen, for example?
1: First of all, like most things in the world, it's usually more complicated than politicians make it out. South Australia has seen the closure of its two major coal-fired power stations. But one of those coal-fired power stations was basically irrelevant already. It was um, more than 50 years old and even before the wind farms came along. So Between 2001 and 2003, which is basically the wind farm started getting built in South Australia around 2003, so if we just took those three years, 2001 to 2003, that's 1,095 days, guess how many days Placid was not operating or generating any electricity, Alan?
0: Couldn't imagine.
1: 898 days. So 82% of the time, that generator wasn't even operating. And so its shutdown was utterly irrelevant. To the market,
0: basically. And not caused by the South Australian government?
1: No, not caused by it. Well, there's another complication in all of this, which is that the large amounts of renewable energy in South Australia have nothing to do with the South Australian government. They have for a long time pretended that they were overseeing this substantial expansion in the renewable energy sector in South Australia, but South Australian government had precisely zero to do with that. That was due to essentially two things. They already had very high electricity prices in South Australia because they have a greater reliance on gas and not very much high-quality coal in South Australia. And so their electricity prices are always, on balance, going to be higher than any other state in the eastern seaboard. And so the wind farm developers were attracted to South Australia by the fact that there were higher electricity prices there, and that's one key component of their revenue. The other component of their revenue is known as a renewable energy certificate. And that is driven by a federal government mandate, not a state government mandate on electricity retailers to acquire a certain proportion of their power from renewable energy. So it's kind of funny that you've got a bunch of federal government parliamentarians blaming South Australia for um, not being able to manage its electricity supplies very well, when in fact the reason there's lots of renewables in there is... It's partly to do with the federal government policy and it's partly to do with just natural features of South Australia that they don't have you know, large reserves of coal and gas is expensive.
0: So what does all this mean, what's been going on, but also the political arguments? What does it all mean for the renewable energy companies such as Infogen?
1: In the short term, it's very good news for them because power prices are going up and consequently their returns are going up So, you know, they benefit from a higher electricity price because they're generating electricity. Also, I suppose the degree of uncertainty that's there, this policy uncertainty, this horrible political conflict that's going on around this this issue means that it's harder to bring in new supply of renewable energy to fill the renewable energy target. And that's good for companies that have existing renewable energy plant because they're also seeing a lift in the price of renewable energy certificates to very high levels. So that's been very good for Infogen, and that's been reflected in their share price, which skyrocketed over the space of the last 18 months. It's also good for AGL, incidentally, because they're actually one of the largest owners or contracted parties with renewable energy generation, and so it's working out well for AGL as well. Some of the other companies that are out there, they're not generally listed, so like Pacific Hydro, which um, used to be listed a long time ago, that's now owned by a Chinese investment company. But obviously it's working well for them as well. But hopefully we're getting through this and we are seeing some new investment flowing into new renewable energy projects. People have had enough confidence to to contract with projects to know that the policy settings won't be changed at least for a reasonable period of time. And so we're starting to see investors get back into the sector and build some large solar farms that are, are now under construction, quite a significant amount of new capacity. So, you know, that will work itself out and... Hopefully that will mean maybe lower electricity prices and lower renewable energy certificate prices and lower bills for the consumers over time.
0: Now let's hear from Richard Murray, CEO of JB Hi-Fi. Sales increased $500 million in the latest half year, so I asked Richard how much of that was due to the demise of Dick Smith. Not the bloke, of course, but the store that went broke.
2: It's difficult for us to break it down. There's no doubt that running 11% sales growth or 8.7% comparable sales in Australia, there's no doubt Dick Smith have influenced those numbers. What we're particularly proud of is we had a strategy to capture that market share and we went after it. And we're pleased with suppliers tell us we've got more than our fair share, so that's particularly pleasing.
0: I suppose the long-term issue for both yourselves and for investors is what sort of growth is sustainable?
2: I think investors understand with JB that, one, I think we shouldn't apologise for the fact that we run the business really well, we deliver great value to customers every day, but we've got to do that in a sustainable way and we've had some competitors over time that have been less sustainable. So I don't think we should apologise for a sustainable model and I think investors respect
0: that. What do you mean by a sustainable model?
2: Well, there's no point just giving product away if you end up going out of business. So we operate on low margins, so we've got to work hard with suppliers to create value for customers. So when you see 20% off TVs, that's JB working with its suppliers to deliver a great TV sale or a great computer sale. So obviously on the EBIT margins we operate on, on sort of 5 to 6% over the year, we've got to make sure we're very efficient and we keep the sales going to make sure we keep our costs in
0: check. Are you saying that those sales, when you have a 20% off TV, that that doesn't come off your margin, that's coming from the suppliers? A majority of the time, we work with suppliers to fund those promotions. Just talking about Dick Smith, they're not the only retailer to have gone broke in the last little while. In fact, it's hard not to notice they're falling over like nine pins. And you kind of wonder, I guess, at what point JB Hi-Fi, not you don't go broke or anything, but at what point do, do the conditions, the online sales, the perhaps the arrival of amazon and the things that are going on in retail start to affect you.
2: Well, I think that's where, you know, we've always been one of those companies that's sort of focused on our knitting, so to speak, and I think if you continue to delight customers, you've got your staff who feel valued, we try and keep the complexity out of the business, so we we try to make sure we get out of our staff's way so they can can do, deliver to customers. It's a very very empowered Organisation, and we, we would like to sit clear sort of bookends to what we need staff to achieve in whatever role they're on, and then we want to get out of their way and let them to deliver to customers. And, and so that's been the strength in the model. And be it overseas competitors, be it online, anything we can do to make ourselves a better organisation, a better retailer, will help stand us in good stead when competitors or changes in the market come along. I respect Amazon but there's you know lots of companies I respect. I respect, you know, many of our domestic competitors. What a good competitive environment encourages you to do is retail's about detail and encourages you to stay focused because the minute you forget about your customers, forget about your staff and hubris creeps into an organization, that's a bad outcome. So I know that when customers come into our stores, because we get the feedback all the time, is that you know they love the genuine, authentic service of our staff. Customers demand the best price every day and we're very focused on that. And so around you know, the biggest brands at the best prices and great customer service, I think that puts us in a really good position. There's very few brands where customers say, I love shopping at JB Hi-Fi. There's very few brands that have that level of respect with customers, and we work very hard to reward that respect with our customers. I
0: suppose I wonder, there's no doubt that JB Hi-Fi is one of the best retailers around for the reasons you just have been talking about, but I wonder to what extent you're a legacy business in the midst of a digital revolution.
2: Well, I mean, we sell most of the products that are part of what you reference as the digital revolution. I mean, ironically, I think vinyl sales are up 75 percent on last year so from a low no base though yeah no no and it's a small part of our music sales and while our software business overall is declining you know to be honest more influenced at the moment by the the slate of gaming releases and they're not quite as be it digital formats or physical formats aren't really resonating with the gamers at the moment because they just don't seem to be up to the same standard they were last year but putting that to one side 87 percent of our sales are in hardware. And obviously, we are selling the devices that many customers are using to stream music or stream movies. So, when to someone the other day, you know, they, a Netflix button on a on a TV nowadays is, you know, a lot of people want that as a standard. So, I guess consumer electronics is a beneficiary of a you know a world that's pretty connected, and our customers are on the go and they want to stay connected, be it from their mobile device, a tablet, a computer, and even when they're at home. You know how that home connectivity is working across the sort of ecosystem at home you know I think is stands us in really good stead. I don't accept the legacy side of the business. I think what is accurate in the sense that j b has always dealt with products as they have transitioned through their life cycle, and many of the products you know we sell today we didn't sell three, five, ten years ago. More of our revenue today comes from products that we didn't sell at the time of the
0: IPO. Are you going to retain the good guy's name and how will that fit in with your future strategy?
2: So I think we're pretty fortunate to have two good sized businesses, you know, J B turning over four B and good guys turning over two B that have clear customer propositions and that we think both can operate independently. We want to get some scale at the back end, but fundamentally there's a lot of customers that shop at the good guys for their constituency is what they call the modern family and you know, around kitchens and appliances and JB's is obviously more exposed to consumer electronics and those Positions in the market are clear, yes, there's, there's a little bit of overlap, but we are very comfortable that we can run both brands independently and do a great job for each brand's
0: respective customers. And which of the two brands do you think will grow the quickest over the next five years?
2: That's a great question. I think there's good growth opportunities for both. I actually don't have a firm view on that. I think the, the challenge is just sometimes how products evolve and how product categories evolve. And the fact that now Good Guys has the opportunity under the JB banner, we are more prepared to invest than under their old model. Their growth was a bit, little bit constrained by the family's ownership and the JVP model. So now that we've transitioned out of both of those, I think there is a good growth Outlook for the good guys, but likewise, we see plenty of opportunities for the JB stores.
0: How much of your six billion in sales is online, and how rapidly is that growing?
2: So, JB runs just under four percent, and good guys runs about six or seven percent. Good guys have dual online sites, so they have an eBay site and a company site, whereas JB just runs a company site. The proportion be it. You know, four, five, six, seven percent. For me, that's not really the point. The point we want to delight customers in store and online, and we don't want to set sort of an arbitrary target. You know, of some proportion online. What we want want to make sure we do is that customers get a consistent experience when they shop with us.
0: And more generally, what do you think is happening to retail? When you look at it broadly as an industry, do you feel kind of depressed about it? Leaving aside your own experience, I love retail. The problem with
2: every retail demise has different stories. Fashion is a tough game. You've got the fickle nature of just fashion where you can nail it one season and be out of favour the next season. A jumper in Hobart is not going to sell in Cairns. JB's model doesn't have some of the, the variability that a fashion retailer does. But you've seen good fashion retailers and obviously Zara and others have challenged many locally based fashion retailers and, and you know made it hard but then it's been hard for DJs and Meyer. it's not sort of unique to small fashion and yes I think the challenge in retail is you know an average JB store you know turns over the best part of 20 million dollars and it's about the same for the good guys they're good solid standalone businesses sort of in their own right so many retailers you know have Seventy stores turning over seventy million dollars, and they're turning over a million dollars a store. Their fixed costs are relatively high, and so when things get tough, those fixed costs really start to bite. Whereas JB has a more flexible model, so when you know, sales are um, strong, you know we're happy to invest in more labour, and we have to be more careful when if sales are a bit weaker. <music>
0: Now, Magnus Nicolin of Ancel, I started by asking about the impact of rising raw materials costs on their profits, but what I couldn't wait to ask him is why he's selling out of condoms, a business that Ansell has been operating for 120 years.
3: They're fairly significant on two of our six major raw material categories, natural latex and nitrile latex, whereas the other four are actually coming down. So for that reason, we think we can offset those two by targeted price increases on the products that are most affected by it and by improving uh, product mix and productivity improvements in the plants and so forth so we're pretty confident that we can offset this effect and therefore we will continue to uh, execute on our core strategies of growing in emerging markets and launching new innovative products and growing our brands and and so forth. It's a challenge for sure, but we're confident that we can deal with it effectively.
0: Can you explain why you're selling the condom business?
3: First of all, it's 15% of sales, and it's the only B2C business we have. The other three are B2B businesses. So very different skills, a very different
0: environment, if you will. You've been doing it for a while now. You'd think you'd you'd know what you're doing by now.
3: Sure. 120 years. That's it. <laughs> it's also business where we're number two in the world, whereas in the other three, we're number one. And we like being number one better than being number two. So we're up to get, against a company like Record and Kaiser in the Section 1 list category. And they have many other consumer products that go into the drugstore chains and so forth, but they tend to leverage in doing deals. So being a single line player is hard in the long term we've been doing well i mean we've been growing share we've been challenging record in multiple markets and taking big share away from them in the uk but in the long term it's going to be hard for us spending less money to compete with a big player like that
0: have you opened a data room
3: yes it's opening as we speak
0: how many people in the data room
3: we haven't disclosed that
0: you can disclose it now though
3: all i can say is multiple strategic multiple financials so at least four
0: so you've got a genuine auction happening?
3: It's a genuine competitive bid process with qualified, strong, financially well-reputed players.
0: Tell us what your business looks like when that part of your business is gone. You're down to three businesses in which you're number one in the world.
3: So uh, competing in multiple verticals, all the way from food to life science and automotive and oil and gas and medical, surgical in hospitals and dentist offices and so forth. So all of these areas is where we play and we provide gloves and arm and body protection products. And you know that we made a number of acquisitions in in the clothing space in the last few years. So we've beefed that up and now have a credible position in those areas. And that's where we think that we can set ourselves apart from the competition, leverage our material science and our engineering capability and our low-cost manufacturing to uh, out-compete the players who are there.
0: In the latest half year, the sales actually fell by 1.1%, but that was because of the divestment of a business called OnGuard. What would sales have grown by without that 1.4%
3: 1.4% was the organic growth, which is nothing to write home about, but is actually consistent with our expectation for the year, where we expected a strong second half, primarily because we have new production capacity coming on stream, and especially medical, but also in the industrial, to feed the continued growth. So we guided for 2 to 4% organic growth for the company as a whole, and we expect that that will uh, be delivered.
0: Once you've divested the condom business and you're back, you know, you're down to the business that you want it to be, what sort of natural sales growth and profit growth do you think the business can achieve?
3: What we're expecting is mid single digit top line and upper single digit bottom line growth. And that can then be complemented with acquisitions to continue to accumulate market share worldwide. And there are a number of attractive opportunities out there. We can constantly evaluate these kinds of opportunities. But the one that we announced a week ago, uh, Nitroplex, was quite small in the UK. But uh, right in the sweet spot in the life science vertical, high growth, high profitability, and quite differentiated products. So many more of those types of acquisitions and a few bigger ones as well.
0: The Ancel share price actually collapsed in April 2015, it went from $30 down to $15 over the course of the rest of that year. I've been trying to figure out why that happened. Why did that happen?
3: A couple of things. First of all, we've probably traded up a little bit too much, too fast to begin with. And then there were two factors. One was something that we had communicated, but I don't think our analysts or many investors had fully understood, and that is that our tax rates are steadily increasing as we have consumed are uh, tax loss carry forwards from uh, way back when. And then there were some big hits from FX in that time period that temporarily put uh, quite a bit of a, uh, a pressure on the business. But that tends to sort itself out over time, and we've seen that happen. But the tax is sort of permanent. We've gone from essentially 13% global corporate tax to 24, 25. And that's where it's stabilized, and that's where we expect
0: it to be Maybe Donald Trump will cut your tax some more.
3: Exactly. (laughs) We're looking forward to that.
0: What do you think about that idea? Is that good?
3: I think a lot of countries around the world are looking at cutting corporate tax. Certainly in countries who are currently charging more than 30%, it's going to become a huge competitive disadvantage. And that's why the UK cut their corporate tax. Lots of countries in Europe have cut it back to the 20% range. I suspect that there will be pressure on a lot of countries to do the same.
0: And finally, this week's main economic news was a remarkable result from NAB's monthly business survey. Businesses in Australia seem to be doing better than they've done for nine years. Trading conditions and confidence are both sky high. I asked NAB's chief economist, Alan Oster, to explain what he found.
4: Basically, quite a kick-up in business conditions, or in other words, business outcomes. Long-run average is around plus 5, and in December it went to plus 10, and then in January it went to 16, which is the strongest readings we've had since pre-GFC. We would caution about taking an exact read and say they're X, but what we would say is after the surprise slowdown in September quarter last year in GDP, you've clearly had a fairly strong end of the year and an equally strong start for 2017. And the strength in the conditions has then flowed through into better confidence levels.
0: What are the implications of this for the economy and for interest rates? Well, I think for
4: the economy, it means that you're going to get a fairly strong 2017. So through the course of the year, we're like two and three quarters to three, and that's roughly where the Reserve Bank is. for rates, this morning, we're going to be changing our rate call. We previously had a rate cut in the middle of the year. In fact, we had two. We've now delayed our rate cut call from middle of the year to November, and we've only got one rather than two. So I think basically the Reserve Bank is really pretty relaxed where they are now. The issue for us is 2018 rather than 2017. In 2018, our view would be that some of the construction cycle will lose momentum. In other words, you can't keep building apartments forever. And secondly, there will be a very strong ramp up in LNG exports in the next 12 months, but then it sort of flattens out. So we have a growth number through the course of 2018, closer to two. Reserve Bank's got three and a quarter. So we have a very different view about next year.
0: And what's your view about next year? Next year, we have the economy slowing, and we
4: think that by the end of the year, that'll be more obvious, and that's why you'll have another rate cut towards the end of this year in recognition of that.
0: You'd sort of asked, in your business survey, you asked more detailed questions. What came out of it on the subject of employment? Well, that was
4: one of the really interesting ones, because for a long time, the employment indexes have been sort of around long-term average and not really showing such signs. There was, in this one, quite a significant kick-up in terms of employment. So what the survey is basically saying is activity levels have got sufficiently strong for people to basically start employing people. And I think that's encouraging. Now, what the statistician will actually put out when he publishes his January employment numbers, who knows, but what we're saying is that the leading indicators Of the labour market are strengthening a bit. It's probably only good enough to keep unemployment roughly flat at around five and three quarters percent rather than dropping it. So it's sort of saying that the economy is now generating some jobs sufficiently to keep employment or unemployment roughly where it is.
0: You must be thinking your next move is going to be to drop your rate cut call entirely.
4: We thought long and hard about that, and it could well be that rate cuts are finished. But what we're worried about is not this year, it's the following year. And so that's a sort of a forecasting view.
0: Why are you worried about 2018?
4: We're worried about 2018 because some of the factors that were basically helping or will help this year essentially peter out. So you get a very large increase in LNG exports, which adds best part of 1% to GDP, and then it sort of flattens off. And in the construction cycle, sure, there's a a huge pipeline in terms of apartments still to build, but by 2018, we have the construction cycle going backwards. We're also concerned slightly that consumption, which is, you know, best part of 60% of the economy, is still not doing very well. And in our business survey, if there's one area that worries us, it's actually retail. Because in the business survey, retail has now dropped below mining in terms of the poorest performing part of the Australian economy. So consumers are basically still very nervous, wages are not increasing much, and they'll pay to go and see the doctor and they have to pay for the utility bills, etc, but they're not lashing out on a couple of extra TVs and things like that.
0: No birthdays today, but today is 11 years since Brownie McGee died, one of the great blues men of all time. From my childhood, where I am now. I ain't gonna worry, I'll get by somehow My mama had um, my daddy had them too I was born with the blue. you Thanks for joining me and thanks to the team. The music was written and performed by ISM Studios. I'll see you in your inbox on Saturday morning.